Good morning, Creekside. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm uh, excited to be opening the Word of God with you uh, this morning. If you have your Bible and want to turn there, um, Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, and I'll put the verses on the screen if you don't have that. But um, I, uh, I want to, so this passage is so, it, it's been a really, uh, it's been a blessing to me. This passage has been powerful to me. It's been a great reminder for me. And, um, and so I want to invite you as we get ready to kind of see this whole scene unfold, I want you to start with a picture in your mind or, or a, um, yeah, I think a specific face if you have one of who is that person in your life that is just a little too far gone that, the, that like this person will never experience the mercy of God. It, like theologically we believe everybody can be saved, right? But who's that person that you're like, that's never going to happen with this person. And I want you to just picture that person, think about it. It may even be you yourself. It might be your spouse, it might be a kid, it might be a parent, it might be a friend, like whoever that is, just picture that person. Um, there's people throughout church history that have been too far gone for God to save that have uh, come. Like, I think God is famous for doing this. Uh, people that are too far gone, but God nonetheless des- decides that he's going to save them anyways. Um, in the fourth century, there was a man that was um, brilliant, intellectually brilliant, but used it all to kind of build up his empire, his intellect. He was teaching. He was also a huge womanizer and even talked about his, like, um, his womanizing relationships in, like, addictive type of terms. And that person, uh, through the, a song that a child sang, God turned his heart, and he became a Christian, became one of the greatest theologians that we've ever had. That his name is St. Augustine um, in the 4th century, that God used to just um, powerfully spread his truth in, in a deeper theological understanding. Look further back in the 1st century, and there's a man that was um, just more opposed to the church than anyone has ever been, probably, and was fighting, doing everything he could, working hard to destroy the church, and yet God uh, showed up to that person. That person, of course, is the Apostle Paul, and used him to change the course of, uh, of kind of history, church history in many ways, write a lot of the New Testament. So there's examples that the church is, like, church history is full of these examples of someone that is, like, so far uh, into their own sin, so far into opposing what God's doing that you're like, that person will never come to experience uh, faith. And I want you to think back now to the, the person that comes to your mind of like, okay, there's someone I've been praying for, but I've kind of given up. Or there's someone that I'm like, there's, there's no way, you know. I can think through people that I know, and there's some that I'm like, yeah, maybe that person will come to know Jesus sometime. And there's other people that I'm like, there's no way. Well, this is an example. This story that we're going to get this morning is an example of God comes for the ones that we would least expect. God comes for the ones that are impossible to save. And I want us to leave here this morning with a renewed sense of God's power to save, to invite in, to bring transformation and healing to people that we would not expect him to be able to do. Um, so the, the setting of all this, we, we've just, uh, Nathan uh, gave us a beautiful sermon last week on Jesus crossing um, the Red Sea uh, with his disciples. So they're in the boat and there's, they're going across, sorry, not the Red Sea, the, the Sea of Galilee. As they're going th- across the Sea of Galilee, uh, the storm comes up and they wake up Jesus because they're afraid of the storm and Jesus is like, why are you guys afraid? And he calms the storm, and they make it through to the other side. So if you want to see pictorially, they kind of started in Capernaum, and they're coming down across the Sea of Galilee. Everything, I'll give you guys a heads up. We're entering map season, okay? So I'm going to put the maps up a little more often because a little more stuff is going on. Uh, Most of what Jesus has been doing is up in that Capernaum area above the Red Sea, or the, man, the Sea of Galilee up there. Um, Down the Jordan River there is where John was baptizing, down further south. But they've been kind of hanging out up here. Now they crossed the Sea of Galilee, that's where the storm was, and they come to the other side, to the southeast corner, 
uh, of the Sea of Galilee to this region called the Gerasenes. Maybe your Bible says Gadarenes. There's some uh, translation issues there. But basically, they've come across, and this is where they're going to end up now. I don't know what comes into your head when you picture the Sea of Galilee, but for me, um, it was a much bigger uh, place than it, than, it was, uh, than it actually is. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's, it's ringed around by mountains all around, and I, um, I, I started looking up, okay, how big is the Sea of Galilee, and I started trying to compare that to the Great Lakes, and my goodness, the Great Lakes are so much bigger than the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's, the Sea of Galilee is about a third of the size of Lake Tahoe, okay? So it's much, much smaller than I thought. It's, it's almost exactly the same size as Clear Lake, if you've been over there. So we're picturing so much of the life of um, what's happening going around this Sea of Galilee, and kind of the makeup of this whole thing is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, there's, uh, it's Jewish land. So Jewish people worshiping the Jewish God, that's kind of what's happening on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. On the east side uh, is Gentile territory. And so there are people that are not worshiping the God of Israel. And so there's both sides are, are kind of different makeups. What we're going to see uh, throughout the entire um, gospel of Mark is Jesus is active on both sides. He's healing people on both sides of the Sea of Galilee. He's casting out demons on both sides. He's even feeding multitudes of people on both sides of this Sea of Galilee. So we're seeing um, an activity with Jesus as he goes around where he's concerned about not just the Jewish people, but everybody, and he's calling them all, inviting them into something. So that's the setting. They've just crossed this lake. Jesus has just saved them from the storm, and now they land on the other side, and the story picks up um, pretty quickly from there. So I'm going to read the first six verses here. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. All right, so we are, we're like getting this intense scene. Jesus steps out of the boat, right? Everything's calm, peaceful moment on, on the Sea of Galilee. But as soon as they get off the boat, this man comes rushing up. And everything that, that Mark does in painting the picture here is showing us like Jesus now just arrived somewhere uh, that's super unclean, okay? So he's in a Gentile land, not a Jewish land. So they're not keeping the ceremonial laws of cleanness for anything. Um, there's, we're going to see in a minute, there's pigs uh, being raised nearby. No Jewish person would be raising pigs, so this is another sign of uncleanness. Then there's a uh, man with an unclean spirit comes running up to Jesus, and he's coming from the tombs, living amongst the tombs, which is an unclean area. So everything about this is like, oh boy, we are not where we should be. You know what I'm saying? The disciples would certainly have been like, okay, Jesus, we uh, took the wrong exit here. This is not where we should be. But here comes this man, and he's rushing up. They, by the way, in Mark chapter 5, we're going to see a few stories over the next few weeks. And just in Mark chapter 5 alone, what we see Jesus doing is he is um, going to be healing, restoring, um, caring for people that are clean and people that are unclean. We're going to see him doing that for Jews and for Gentiles. We're going to see him doing it for men and for women. So just even in this one chapter, we see Jesus' care and concern for all kinds of people. doesn't matter where they come from. doesn't matter what their experience. Jesus is there for them, and he's inviting them in. And we're given this picture of this guy that comes running up. We, we don't even learn his name, which is crazy to me. 
But this guy comes, and his existence is spelled out here. He is, um, he is oppressed by demons, okay? So there's, there's this demonic influence that's all about him, that's oppressing him, that's making his life absolutely miserable. It also was doing crazy things like giving him supernatural strength. So somehow, all, the, all of the people in the society are trying to like bind him, to control him, to confine him. And he's just like ripping these, um, these shackles apart. And he's just living his life just tormented by these demonic forces. And the people, he's, he's abused by the demons. I think he's also abused by the society that's like, this guy's too much, whatever. So they're doing their best to just control him or get him out or get him away. And he, like, he's just suffering so much from everybody trying to just contain him or whatever. And it says, uh, like, it's really actually heartbreaking in verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones Here's a man just at the absolute end, right? I mean, just cast out, no hope, no anything. And everybody's terrified of him. Everybody, he's an outcast to everybody. And here comes this man, and he's, in verse 6, he just falls down at the feet of Jesus, okay? We know, uh, as, as astute readers of the Gospels, what a great place he's in right now. I wonder what he knew as he fell down, just came to the very end of himself, falls down at the feet of Jesus. We're like, yes, this is it. This is exactly where this man needs to be. Because, because when he falls down at the feet of Jesus, it doesn't matter what he's done in his life, right? It doesn't matter what he's left undone with his life. It doesn't matter what he's experienced or what people have done to him. When that man comes and falls down at the feet of Jesus, everything is completely irrelevant except for who Jesus is. He's sitting on his knees in the right place, in front of the right person, and that's all that's going to matter is what we're going to see. So again, the question, who is beyond the mercy of God? Who is beyond the reach of God? We're going to find even this guy that's experienced so much, that's been in so much pain, um, it doesn't matter. What matters is who Jesus is. So let's enter into this guy. This guy has been suffering. We're going to look at the oppression that he's been experiencing. We're going to see Jesus addressing that. Verses 7 through 13 here. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So here's this whole crazy scene now where Jesus, it starts with Jesus saying to, the, to, to this person that's there, come out of him, you unclean spirit. He's talking to the spirits. And the, the, these demons are then speaking back uh, maybe through this guy's voice. I, um, I am not the most intelligent person in the world, but I am smart enough not to try to do a demon impression voice for you guys. So I'm sorry that you missed out on that. Didn't even try it first service. Um, wasn't even going to do it. Um, but I'm, I'm guaranteed they didn't sound like what I was just saying there. What, what I don't know is like, what did it sound like? You know what I'm saying? Like it seems kind of like there's like confusion here. We're finding there's multiple demons in this guy. And um, he's kind of talking like it's himself, but he's also, he's, sometimes he's saying me, sometimes he's saying we. Like it's this confusing, crazy scenario. Um, it's like a heated type of a thing. But clearly the demons are somehow kind of speaking through him. And Jesus um, begins speaking into this situation. And he speaks to the man. What I think is beautiful about here is Jesus differentiates between the man himself, and the demons that are oppressing this guy. And I think that's beautiful because I think society as a whole has been treating, treating him as like 
a whole nutcase, you know what I'm saying? Like a whole problem, this whole thing. And Jesus is there and walks up to the man, to the human being, and he speaks to the demon and says, you get out of him, you unclean spirit. And he's trying to liberate this guy from the demonic forces around him. I, I think it's beautiful. We don't know, like, how did these demons come to be in this guy? Like, we have no idea. Um, it seems like often there are things as human beings we can do to kind of invite that sort of um, demonic influence. Um, Paul, matter of fact, one of the clearest verses for me is in Ephesians 4, um, where Paul talks about, he says, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give a foothold to the devil. It seems like what he's saying is, um, if, we, if we do things like get angry and we kind of harbor that, we let it kind of fester in our lives, that's sort of giving a hold or a place um, for the devil to kind of come in and kind of do some damage. So I think there's things like that that we can do to sort of invite um, some demonic oppression, um, those kinds of things. But I think what's beautiful here is we don't know how it happened. And really, it doesn't matter at all. Like, it just, it really doesn't matter at all. Because here's a man that, that is um, very, very oppressed by demons. And here is Jesus um, speaking to this person. Everyone's terrified of him, right? Everyone's like afraid of this guy. And yet here's Jesus seeing just a man, just a person that's been outcast, a person that's been oppressed, a person that's been abused. And Jesus is speaking to set this man free. Um, this is like a huge showdown between Jesus and these demons. So we don't, we don't know exactly how many demons were here. He says, we're, uh, my name is Legion because we're many. So we know there's many demons here in this guy. Um, you, we might infer, so it, he, Jesus allows them to go into the pigs. The pigs go, and it says there's 2,000 pigs that go crashing and get destroyed in the sea. So it's possible that it's like one demon per pig. Like there could be up to 2,000 demons in this dude, which is a crazy thought. It doesn't have to be that many, um, but it might be. Either way, there's this army of demons inside this one guy. And Jesus steps up. So this is a major power struggle where Jesus is hugely outnumbered, right? Uh, uh, 2,000 potentially to one. And yet look at the way the demons are responding to Jesus. Jesus comes up, seems like pretty simply, seems like pretty calmly, get out of this man, you unclean spirit. And what they're doing is they're kind of, well, it says, uh, the words Mark uses, they're begging him, right? Begging him not to torment them, right? They're, they're asking his permission. Can we please go into the pigs? Don't send us out of the region. Could you? And Jesus is like, fine, you have my permission. Go do. It's like 2,000 to 1, and yet the power balance, we would think, is on the side of this army of demons, and yet the power balance is one Jesus is infinitely more than, than 2,000 demons, or all the demons in the world, in fact. Jesus is calmly, uh, in reality, way more powerful than anything this, like, so who is too far gone for God to save? Who is beyond, uh, like, beyond repair? Like, man, just, like, like that's it. The guy had a chance earlier in life, but now it's over. You would think it'd be this guy with up to 2,000 demons in him. But Jesus just casually, leave him. Leave this man uh, and set him free. And Jesus is simply speaking with all of this authority. There's no dispute. There's no struggle. There's no wrestle. Jesus simply has more authority, and they know it. Um, it's not even questioned in this whole thing. One beautiful thing that I see here is, um, we, we mentioned earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Mark is um, painting the, the story of Jesus in light of the story of Israel. He's painting it largely in light of the, 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 um, the events in the Old Testament that are recorded in Exodus, okay? So we, we said, like, Mark is interacting a lot with the Gospel, of, or said the, the book of Isaiah. It is kind of a Gospel, the good news of Isaiah. But um, so he'll keep doing that, and he keeps painting it in terms of the Exodus. So if you remember, in the Exodus story, God's people, uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, 
are in slavery in Egypt. And, and God sends Moses, leads them out, takes them uh, through the Red Sea, miraculously, takes them out 40 years in the wilderness, and then leads them finally into the promised land. Well, Jesus, at the beginning of God, Mark's gospel, Jesus comes, and he gets um, baptized in the Jordan River, almost like going through the Red Sea in a sense. He goes and spends 40 days in the wilderness, whereas Israel had spent 40 years in the wilderness. And then Jesus goes and begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is here, just like Israel went eventually into the kingdom um, or the promised land. So there's this echo that's being drawn. Here we see another interesting echo, because uh, Israel, when God led them through the Red Sea, what happened? He used Moses to command the sea, right? Command the sea to part and spread. And so they, the people come and they, they come to the Red Sea and God gives the command and they walk across on dry land in the midst of the sea. Uh, he does that powerfully. And then all of his people go safely through the Red Sea. And then when they're on the other side, God drowns the entire army in the sea that his people had just crossed safely through. Well, here Mark's painting this picture. We see Jesus and his 12 disciples in the boat, and they're going across. And there's the whole storm, and Jesus commands the sea. And the sea magically, mysteriously calms instantly, right? And so God um, commands the sea, and he leads his, his 12 disciples safely across. And what happens now when they get to the other side? Well, this whole army that's oppressing his people gets drowned in the same sea that he just commanded and led his people safely across. I think Mark is trying to show us what Jesus is doing is just like what, Jesus, what God had been doing always for Israel. He leads his people to safety. He leads us out of slavery. He leads us into the kingdom. And he is there um, for his people uh, to do beautiful things. One huge contrast between those two stories is in the Old Testament, it was God acting in this big way, really big, powerful way, commanding nature, defeating armies so that he could lead his whole entire people out of slavery and into the kingdom, into the promised land. Here, it's Jesus doing it. Uh, all that same power, right, to command the sea to obey what he's saying. All that power to save one person, right? He, we see Jesus actually is that one, the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go and find that one. Jesus did all of that same thing, destroyed the whole army and commanded nature so that he could get there and save one person that nobody cared about at all. One Gentile person that was unclean as all get out, and he comes and uses all his power for that one person. Who, who is beyond the reach of God? Definitely not this guy. And if not this guy, then nobody. So what's the response? I mean, you see God acting like this. We see, man, the power of God on display in this compassionate show for this person that nobody wanted to be around. And um, how are people going to respond? Um, I would imagine if I didn't have the rest of the story, I'd be like, man, the, the countryside, the people, they saw that. And they were like, Jesus, you are God. We want to worship you. We want to uh, give up everything else. Unsurprisingly, that's not quite how it goes. So here's the response of the people. The herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So here's what's crazy. So the story gets told, and everyone's like, it's like, man, this 
demons were just cast out of this guy, these pigs and everything. So people are like, I got to see this. So they go rushing down. Jesus is still there. There's the man, and they arrive on the scene. What they see is, okay, here's this guy. Everyone knew the crazy guy. You know what I'm saying? Everybody, everybody had tried to, like, chain him up, and we've cast him out into the tombs. That's about as good as we can do. Everybody knew him, and here they see him. And he's not insane. He's actually in his right mind. And he's clothed. Apparently Jesus and the disciples had given this man clothed, clothes, and he's there, and they're like, whoa, this is crazy, right? This guy is there. They also see the destructive power of the demons, okay? So before it was like, man, this guy's hard to chain up, but now they see when those demons came out of the guy, and they go into the pigs, like that whole herd of 2,000 pigs is just destroyed in an instant, drowned in the sea, and so they're like, wow, this is crazy. Whatever just happened here with Jesus is crazy, and it says that they're actually scared of the whole thing. I, I wonder, it probably was less scary for them. All these demons inside of one person, like one person that's suffering from all these demons could be kind of safely like, okay, yeah, well, there's the crazy guy, but like we're good over here, you know? But when you see that all the demonic power that's oppressing this person is now let loose and all these pigs and their herds, they're like, wow, that's a lot of power. And unfortunately, I think what they probably saw also is huge economic loss. Think of what it would be like to have 2,000 pigs as your livelihood and all of a sudden in an instant they're ground. I think there's anger, there's frustration, and there's fear of like, okay, we just, uh, I think I'm, I'm going to say it as crass as I can because I think that's what it is. Um, we didn't care when it was just one guy, one homeless guy that was being oppressed, but now we care that we've lost something we actually care about, which is these pigs, right? And so they're terrified, they're angry, and so Jesus' act of mercy, his power all aimed and directed towards an act of mercy for this guy becomes this thing that they're absolutely terrified of. Like going back to the previous story once again, the disciples were just in a boat with Jesus, and they were in this storm, and they were afraid. Like it says that they were afraid on the sea. But when Jesus spoke and he calmed the storm, it says that they, uh, they feared great fear. Like literally the Greek words there, it's like the verb form of fear, then the noun form of fear, and then the word great. So they feared great fear. Like so like they were kind of afraid before, but once Jesus calmed the storm and made everything okay, they were like terrified. Here we see these people, and Jesus is calming the storm in this guy's soul, right? Gets all the demons out of there, and they come, and they find this man who's calm and at peace. And it says, it uses the same word there, they're terrified of this merciful power of Jesus. And they look at him, and they're like, hey, we do not want this here, right? Like, they, they would clearly have rather this guy go on suffering because they didn't care about him. We don't want that here. They're begging him to leave. And so, so for me, when I think of, okay, what, what do I want God to do in the world? I, I, I want people to know that God is real. I want them to know that he's powerful. I want them to know that he can heal. And I think, okay, God, why don't you do more miracles, right? Because then more people could know and they could see and they could respond. Um, you think when we're praying for someone that has cancer, when someone who's, who's dying from whatever, and we're just praying for them, like, Lord, do it so that people can see that you have power to answer prayer, and then they're going to repent, and they're going to come see you. Lord, why don't you stop the conflict that's happening with the wars all around the world, because then people will see that you're powerful, and they'll stop. But unfortunately, stories like this are a reminder that people don't see miracles and automatically have faith, right? It's actually a lot like the parables. Remember the parables? Jesus was saying, he teaches in, in parables because some people see and they get it and they're like, oh my goodness, the, the power and the ways of God are so good. And other people see it and they're like, ooh, I don't want anything to do with that. That's confusing. It's weird. It's not my thing. And, and so the parables were like dividing. Like some were like, yes, I want it. And others were like, no, thanks. I think the, the miracles are the same thing. 
Some people see it and they're like, this is incredible. I want to follow this God. And other people see it and they're like, ugh, that's like, that's not okay with me. So I asked myself, and sometimes I don't get this far, but I was asking myself, like, why, why would people be so scared and terrified and, and put off by um, this act of mercy? Like, why could an act of mercy like this be terrifying to people? And I, I think what, I'm, what I see here is that it really depends on our perspective on God. It depends on our perspective on life. So if we are like, if we as people are really attuned to who God is, his mercy and his power, like if we're really attuned to that, then when God does a, a powerful act of love for somebody, we're like, yes, we receive it with all kinds of humility. We receive it with all kinds of gratitude because our souls have been kind of attuned to that. And that's what we want to see in the world. But, but for people that are like happy with the world as it is, happy with life the way it's going, happy with the lot in life that they've, um, that they've pulled, it's terrifying to think that everything could change so quickly, right? You've got it good. And so if everything changes quickly, that might be bad. And that's a scary thought. If, if what your life is directed towards is comfort, accolades, power, control, like, like for so many people outside of the church and certainly even inside the church, if our lives are directed towards getting things to be comfortable and good for us so we can control how things feel, well, if you're in that type of a state, the kinds of things that scare you are supernatural things, right? Like, like the loss of things. So think of um, uh, what scares you in life. Like when you, when you hear that the stock market is stop, starting to dip, are you like, ah, it's cool, God's in control? Or are you like, oh man, what do I do with my investments? Or what's going to happen with my retirement? It's scary to think of losing our safety net. On a, on a different level, like you have the secrets in your life that you kind of hold on to, that you're afraid that people will know. It's terrifying to think, okay, the truth about me that I work so hard to keep hidden is going to come out, and that's going to come to light, and everyone's going to know. Um, on another level, like just being laid off from your job or, or being passed up for, for a promotion, most of us have survived these kinds of things, but when that happens, it's terrifying to us because it unsettles us. And the things that we want in life, the stability, the control, uh, the comfort, those things all can go away, and so we hedge our risks, we do what we can to, to try to keep control of everything. And so if you're living in that mode, then, then seeing a picture of a God who can suddenly tip the scales dramatically, instantly, and, and, and we would say whimsically, right? Like tip the scales dramatically just so that some random homeless guy can be put back into society. We're like, boy, that is terrifying to us that the world could operate in a way that leaves me without power. And so I think what's happening for these Gentile people, they, they see uh, Jesus come in and he doesn't give a rip about what they want to see in life. They don't care about their values or whatever. He sees a guy that's hurting and he cares about him. Even though it causes this great economic, economic loss, they don't care about the man, so they don't care about what Jesus did. And it's a terrifying thing to, to them. Jesus doesn't fit the world that they want to see, the world that they want to experience. And so I think for us, it's like, any time in life that we have a tendency to downplay or undervalue the mercy of God, we can just see our hearts aren't aligned. Like if, if what we're praying for and what we're wanting to see in the world is not God being merciful to every person, regardless of how much we like them or appreciate them or respect them, if we don't want to see God doing powerful, merciful things, then we're not aligned with God's heart because that's just who God is. We're seeing a picture of who God really is here, and he is a God that just comes and pursues and finds and brings us in, even and, and, and not just us good, put-together people, right? But the crazy ones, the ones that nobody cares about anymore, he's coming for them, and it's beautiful, but it's scary. 
So how does it end? It ends, we get the, the end picture that we get in this story is of this man that, that doesn't get a name yet, but we get to see things from his eyes just a little bit. And so here's this new life that he experiences. In verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And this man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So Jesus came, the whole thing, like, so what's crazy is Jesus comes across, this man interrupts him. Clearly this is an interruption. The guy just comes up to Jesus, and Jesus handles the situation, and now they're getting back in the boat to go home. So there's the dad inside of me that plans vacations and whatever else is like, but what was the point of the trip? Like, you just lost your whole thing, right? And I think so often God works through these kinds of interruptions. Like, what was the point of this trip if, if this man could, like, interrupt the whole thing and Jesus goes back? I suspect Jesus probably crossed that whole Sea of Galilee and calmed the storm and all this just so that he could heal this one guy. I think that's probably the case. Freedom for a single man is like, man, it's just so beautiful. And what the result of it is, is that the truth, the reality of who Jesus is, began to echo throughout this entire region because of it. Jesus takes this man and makes him into an apostle, like sends him out. The, the man comes to Jesus, and while everybody is begging Jesus, like, don't stay here, go away, we don't want you here, we don't want any of this that you're doing here, this man is going up to Jesus and begging him, please let me come with you. Don't leave me alone here, let me come back with you, which I I'll just say, I get it. Like, I understand this man. I'm very sympathetic to him being like, okay, life was terrible. You just saved me. Keep me close to you. But I picture Jesus kind of uh, coming to him and just saying, hey, I get it. Like, I, I want you with me as well, but I've got a job for you to do. And I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you what you need to do your job. He kind of looks at him. I, obviously, Jesus is full of compassion, but he's saying, hey, nonetheless, I've got a job for you to do. I want you to go out and do it. I, I read this and I see... If it was just me, my Mr. Rogers heart would be like, hey, bud, stick with me. I got you. You know, you'll, I'll never make you do anything hard again. We'll get through this, you know. But Jesus is like, hey, you don't need the coddling that you think you need, right? You're like, you don't need as much comfort and safety as you think you need. Um, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to send you out. So I, I think probably most of you won't be shocked, knowing what you know of me, to know that when I was a kid, um, I was like the homesick kid, okay? So like sleepovers were not my favorite because, you know, I missed my parents and my bed and my, my sisters even, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I was, like, I was like little and whatever. So there was one night where I was spending the night at my best friend's house. I think it was probably the first major sleepover that I had. And, um, and I just, I couldn't do it, man. I was, I was in tears and I was just a sad little guy, man. And, um, and my parents would do weird things like th back then, like go grocery shopping at 10 p.m. Like, I don't even know. that My friend's parents were trying to call home. We didn't have cell phones. They're trying to, they couldn't get a hold of my parents because who knows, you know? And um, so they, they're like, we don't know. This poor kid is inconsolable. So they call the pastor of our church and they're like, hey, what do we do? Which I just want to say clearly to all of you, you don't need to do that, you know? Um, you, guys, you guys are good. You can figure it out. Google it if you need to, you know? <clears throat> But I remember the pastor uh, told my friend's parents, like, he's fine, just kind of be with him, and he'll be okay, and everything else. And I remember being, like, um, so angry that the pastor would say that, you know. So it's, it's a miracle that I stayed in the church, guys. I'm just going to let you know. <laughs> but, uh, but I think, you know, the point is that he was right, and, and these parents were right. Like, I didn't need to go home. I thought I did. I thought I needed, like, some comfort from home. I did. I was fine. And look how well-adjusted and great I am now, guys. Like, it all worked out. 
And I think so often what we think we need in terms of safety and, and, and encouragement and coddling, like, I think Jesus just looks at us and is like, hey, I get it. I love you guys. Like, I'm going to give you everything you need, but I've got some harder things for you to do as well, right? Like, I've got, I've got somewhere that I want you to go, and you can do this. I'll be, like, he even says at the end of the Gospels, I'm going to be with you, right? Like, like, go and make disciples. I'll be with you all, all the way to the end. So he's going to go with us. It, it's mysterious how it works, but it, Jesus looks at the guy and just says, look, what I want you to do, verse, verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That, that's, like, that's like the best advice I think Jesus could give any of us. So I'm picturing us like we, we end this service, okay, and we, uh, we head out and I'm like, hey, before you go home, um, actually, special guest Jesus showed up this morning, and he's going to be back in the conference room, and he just wants to have a five-minute consultation with each of you. And so we line up, and Jesus sits down one at a time with each of us for five minutes, and he just says, hey, look at all these things that I've done in your life. And I just picture, picture Jesus specifically mentioning that, like, that diagnosis that he helped you through, that, that loss of a loved one that he helped you through. Look at all these things that I've done in your life. And then Jesus says, okay, I want you to go and take every, every neighbor, every friend, every coworker, and just tell them the merciful things, the great things that I've done for you. I, like, I think that's the job description that we have as Christians. I think that's the whole job description, as a matter of fact, is we look and we say, okay, look at the things that God's done in my life. Um, go just tell people what the Lord's done for you. Like, that, that's not that hard, to be honest. It, it's scary for us because we're babies, but it's not that hard to be like, man, the Lord helped me through some tough things in my life, you know? And, and that's what this guy does. And he goes and just tells everybody, and everybody marvels because, wow, the Lord is powerful. The Lord is merciful. Look at what he's doing. And just through this simple thing of just sending this man back out, um, the word spreads and people begin to um, see more and more who Jesus is. So the way I want to wrap this up is just looking at this story and seeing um, it's crazy. It is a crazy story, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, there's implications for, for demonic influence and all those kinds of things. We'll keep seeing that throughout the Gospels. But what we see, I hope, is just the absolute power of Jesus, the, the calm control that Jesus has over everything, and the, the intense, merciful compassion of Jesus that would cross all the way over to find this one guy, the guy that nobody cared about, the guy that was way too far gone, the guy that was beyond redemption, and Jesus goes, and that's enough, and he comes and expends all of this power, power that we didn't know existed in the universe, expends all this power just for this one guy. And he just casually tells him at the end, hey, go and tell everybody all the amazing things that God has done for you. The, the beautiful thing is Jesus takes this man who's naked and he's outside the city and he's in tombs and he's, he's uh, oppressed. By the end of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus outside of the city, out amongst the tombs, naked and oppressed. Jesus will effectively, by the end of the story, take this man's place in being outcast from society, and he'll do all of it because he wants to heal us. He does it on our behalf to give us peace and, and grace and forgiveness with God and healing and, um, and peace of mind and restoration of soul. All of this Jesus offers to us, and I think then he just looks and says, hey, what I want us to do in closing this off is to think, okay, who is beyond the mercy of God? And, and I want you to look at your own heart and think of, okay, what's that, what's that place in your heart that you're like, that's the ir irredeemable part of me. This is the part where I've had the, the sin struggle, or I've had the problems trusting God or trusting other people, or I've had these wounds that go really deep. And I want you to think about, is that place in your heart actually beyond the power of God, the mercy of God to come and, and heal and restore? If you feel that way, then I'm going to invite you to read this story again and see 
man, if you have 2,000 demons living in that part of your heart, Jesus can come and just casually make it whole. And I want you to believe again that it's possible. Lord, take that thing that I'm hiding. Take that thing that I'm suffering from. Take that wound that is so deep I don't think it'll ever be healed. And Lord, would you speak truth into it? I want us to listen for God to speak into those places. And then I know for many of you, I know for a lot of you, you're praying for a kid, a grown kid. Uh, You're praying for a spouse. You're praying for a parent. You're praying for a friend that is so far gone so far gone, um, that you're like, I, I don't know, Lord, I keep praying and nothing keeps happening, and I just want us to hear this story and believe again, okay, maybe the Lord is still coming for that person, maybe he still will do that thing, and I want us to hold out hope and believe, okay, nobody is beyond the mercy of God, and there's beautiful things that God has um, for all of us in store. So I'm going to ask just to, to consider that, to sit with this story, to linger with it, and to do that, I'm going to invite Chelsea Sanchin to come on up here and um, Chelsea's going to lead us in just a quiet, reflective, prayerful time and uh, to just hold these beautiful things that the Lord's done um, in, in silence in a, in a quiet moment for a little bit.